This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. And uh, open your Bibles to Genesis 1, if you have a Bible with you. Let's, let me pray, and we will we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that your word is always clear to us, um, that you tell us what we need to know, uh, that your word is authoritative, that your word is powerful, and we thank you for it. And I pray tonight that you would speak to us with clarity. I pray that you would put in us a conviction about what your scripture teaches, and I pray that you would put in us a sense of humility and awareness of our own need, and that you would give us a heart for others to experience sexual freedom in the gospel, freedom from sexual sin uh, in the gospel. So I pray for that as well. So Lord, just speak to us tonight. We open your word and we do it uh, trusting you, that you will speak and that you will help us. And Lord, anyone entangled in sexual sin tonight, I pray that you would be the freeing God that you are and that you would grant freedom and hope uh, to us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I really intentionally saved the topic of homosexuality till the last message in the series because I wanted to follow what I think is the scriptural pattern is to sort of lay out God's purpose and design Uh, for sex, uh, which we have done over the last eight weeks. So we did two messages on the purpose of sex. We did a message on why is sex and sexual relationships in marriage, why are they not perfect anymore after the fall, after Genesis 3. Uh, We did uh, two messages on married people and sex. We basically walked through all of Song of Solomon. Um, And then we did a message on sex and singles. And then last week we did a message on pornography. So you can access any of those on our website. Um, Man, I am just starting off totally frustrated because there's no way that I can cover the subject of homosexuality uh, in a sermon. That's just impossible. Uh, But I am going to try to address the high points of where the scripture addresses. I can't say all the scripture says. I cannot answer all the questions uh, that might be raised Um, but I'm going to do the best I can, and I'm going to recommend several resources, which uh, I've read all uh, in their entirety, uh, and these are all very good and would be helpful. So one is a newer book by Kevin DeYoung. You may not be able to see this in the back. We'll put this up on the city, but it's Kevin DeYoung, D-E-Y-O-U-N-G. He's written a book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Um, And this is a very, very good book. Uh, The tone is good. Uh, the content is uh, very sound. And one thing he does is he addresses, without doing so super blatantly, but he addresses arguments. Uh, there, is, there are now arguments rising from um, people who profess to be evangelicals with high views of Scripture who are, are supportive of um, uh, homosexual unions as something that is uh, uh, holy and right before the Lord in the church. And so he addresses some of those arguments that they're raising from the scripture. He would not hold that view. So he would be addressing those. So anyway, uh, this is a very, very good book, I think. A second one, uh, and he is a pastor. Uh, I'll tell you something about each of these people. He is a married pastor with a, with a load of kids. I forget how many he has, but he's uh, up in Michigan. The next book is called Is God Anti-Gay? And I don't know why they're both kind of the same color, but they are. So this is called Is God Anti-Gay? This is very short. Uh, this is eight, 90 pages or so. And other questions about homosexuality, <clears throat> the Bible, and same-sex attraction. 
The author is Sam Albury, A-L-L-B-E-R-R-Y, Sam Albury. Sam Albury is a pastor as well. He is single. Uh, he is an Anglican, and uh, he would say the exact same things that are in the other book, which are going to reflect what I'm going to teach here in a moment, about what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. He is single, however, uh, because he wrestles with what he calls same-sex attraction. And uh, so he is celibate. He uh, does not have sex with men. Uh, he is celibate, but just as we all have temptations in various areas, that is an area of temptation that he wrestles with, and he addresses that uh, in the book in a very, very clear way. Temptation and sin are two different things. Temptation is not sin. Sin is sin. So he talks about that. Is God anti-gay? Uh, the answer is no. God is gospel for people, wh- whoever they are. God, Jesus died for sinners. So that's the point. This is a very good book. The, the scriptural stuff is exactly the same here, but he has extra sections on uh, how do you support Christians who are facing that temptation uh, and how does the church respond and some very good things like that. So this is a very good book. Sam Albury, A-L-L-B-E-R-R-Y. I had opportunity to hear him speak locally in Frisco at Providence Church not too long ago, and outstanding. The last book is a little long title. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. The author is Rosaria. Her last name, I'll just tell you, is Butterfield. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely uh, Convert, Rosaria Butterfield. She is a Christian. Uh, She uh, was uh, a practicing lesbian. She was not only a practicing lesbian, But she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University whose specialty was queer theory. And she was the faculty sponsor for the uh, LGBT club on campus and stuff. So the reason she says an unlikely uh, convert is because she was not only a uh, practicing uh, homosexual who was opposed, strongly opposed to the gospel, uh, but she was involved as a spokesperson in, in a very public way. Her story of coming to Christ is fascinating, and it is a great lesson for everyone in this church, me, all of us, about how to reach out uh, as an evangelical Christian, how to reach out with love, care, hospitality, friendship, and relationship uh, to, um, to gays, is what she, she was reached out to with compassionate care and invited into the home of a pastor and his wife, and by their patient care and relationship with her. That's what led her to Christ. Uh, it wasn't their slogans, uh, calling her whatever it was their heart to welcome her that won her to the gospel. Now she's married, uh, has kids. Her husband's a pastor. She's phenomenal. This is a phenomenal book. Uh, so anyway, well, those are three books. I'll have them up here at the end. If you would like to see those. So they'll answer a lot of questions. I'm just going to try to answer three questions tonight and here they are. So this is a topical message. I'm going to answer three questions. The first is, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? The second is, how should the church relate to unbelieving homosexuals? So first of all, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? How should the church relate to unbelieving homosexuals? And the last thing I want to talk about is, how should the church relate to Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction? Which might be a new category for you. Um, So hopefully this will be helpful if it is. Uh, how does the church relate to Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction? So those are the three topics I want to talk about tonight. Um, this is not going to be, I'm not going to address political issues at all. Uh, I don't think, I don't I forget my notes, but I don't think I'm going to talk about uh, gay marriage and the Supreme Court. Uh, because I feel like if I've got one message to talk about this topic, w- what we need is a personal 
and a pastoral word, not a political word. <clears throat> and we need a personal word <clears throat> because this topic is, is not about that group of people out there. This is about real people. The subject of homosexuality touches everyone in the room, I assume, because many of us have friends, I hope we have friends, who are homosexual. We have relatives. Um, we have people that, that, uh, that are our neighbors or our coworkers. And so it's not just about some amorphous group with a political agenda. It's about real people that we know. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, someone in the lobby in our church told me that their brother um, was gay and that, uh, that he died of AIDS. So this, is a very, this isn't just a political rally cry for that person. This is, this is people with real names. And not only um, folks who are part of the L- LGBT community, but, but Christians who are converted and are pursuing a holy walk with the Lord whose temptation might be different than yours, but their temptation is same-sex attraction that they battle. And some of them are in this room tonight. And so this is a very real topic that we want to be personal and we want to be careful about and we want to be clear about. And so really my goal is two things tonight. I want to talk about a biblical conviction about what the Scripture teaches about homosexuality, and then I want to talk about biblical compassion because we need both. And if I can paint with a really broad brush, because we've got a varied audience here, this, this, this is not altogether true, but this is my general observation. If you are in my generation, I'm, I'm 51. So if you're in my generation and you've been an evangelical Christian for a while, you'll perhaps be strong on the conviction. You'll be strong that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is sinful. You, you, that, that may be the only camp you're in. And if you're 20 or 25 or 16, if you're in the generation younger, you're likely strong on compassion. And you don't get why the older people are singling out homosexuality and why the older people are all bent out of shape uh, about that. Even if you have a conviction that the Bible teaches it's wrong, you still lean much more towards compassion and care because you have friends that are gay. and, and, And maybe people in my generation don't as much. And so it's not totally true, but it's generally true that the older generation has conviction and that the younger generation has compassion, and we got to have both. You can't have compassion without conviction, first of all, because it is not compassionate to to leave someone with the impression that something that is in their life that is sinful is okay with God and is not sinful. That's not loving. For me to communicate to someone... Though I know God says what you're doing is sinful, it's all right. That is hateful and not loving. On the other hand, to just say the Bible says it and that's the end of the story, without an awareness of my own sin, without awareness of my own sexual temptation and sin, without humility, without love and compassion and a heart to reach out, and it's just the Bible says it and that's all, that's not, that's not the picture either. We want both. We want conviction and we want compassion because that's the way Jesus is. Jesus in the Bible never teaches that extortion is acceptable. And yet he's friends with tax collectors who extort people and he calls a tax collector to be a disciple. So Jesus can never endorse extortion but reach out to extortionists. 
Jesus never teaches that it's okay to have sex outside of marriage, yet he is judged for being a friend to prostitutes. He never says sex outside of marriage is okay, but he befriends people that are prostitutes and likely has some followers. Well, he does have some followers that were loose women prior to conversion that never would have heard the gospel if he just said, you're bad, you're sinful, you're, you're, a, you're a whore, I don't want anything to do with you. They'd have never met the Lord. And so Jesus has perfect compassion, never endorses sin, but Jesus, I mean, has perfect conviction, but he has perfect compassion reaching sinners. Jesus says to someone who looks to him, I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more is live righteously. But I welcome you and I don't condemn you is compassion. So we have to have both. So I'm going to talk passionately about both of them. And for half the message, some of you are going to squirm. And then for the other half of the message, some other people are going to squirm. And it won't run exactly down age lines. But I know that's going to happen because I'm squirming looking at the notes myself. And I wrote the notes. Uh, so anyway, so we'll squirm. But that's okay. We've been squirming for seven weeks. One of the parents... One of the parents last night at the equip meeting said, it's been a great series, but I'm glad it's over because I'm like on the edge of my seat wondering what's, gonna, what's he going to say that my 12-year-old's hearing this week. So at, we'll relax and be in First Peter next week. But uh, tonight, we're going to squirm one more time. So let me talk about conviction. And uh, if you're squirming, realize the second part I'm going to talk about is compassion. And then I'll remind everyone else uh, at that point as well. So conviction. In many ways, we've already answered the question, what does the Bible teach about homosexual practice? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it homosexual practice, which, is, which means activity, sexual activity is what I want to talk about. So we've already talked about that. What does the Bible teach about homosexual practice? We've already talked about it because we've covered in Genesis 1 and 2, God's design for sexuality and God's design for marriage. And God's design in Genesis 1 and 2 is not merely descriptive, like a description of what happened. It's prescriptive. It is a paradigm. It is a model. It reflects the intent of God for humanity. And that's why in the New Testament, they look back to Genesis 1 and 2 frequently. So we talked about the purpose of sex uh, the first two weeks of this series back in July. But look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I want to review this again. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So listen to this, 127. God created man in his own image. Now, he already said, let us create man in our image. So the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates humanity to reflect his image, but he does so by creating two different genders, a male and a female. And together they reflect him in a unique way. Every person is an image bearer of God, but a married couple reflects him in, a, in something of a different way. How is that? Well, he says, let us make man in our image. He created them, male and female, in his image. How does that work? Well, it works this way, that man and woman are both image bearers of God, so they're both human, they're both the same in one way. She's taken from his rib, she's made from him, out of the man. That's what woman means, out of the man. So they're the same. But in another way, they're different. They're complementary, 
And by that, I'm going to use that word a lot tonight, C-O-M-P-L-E, complimentary. They complement, like go together. Compliment, uh, not like, hey, nice shoes, not that kind of compliment. So they're complementary. And so because they're complementary, they reflect God when they come together in a one flesh union or in a marriage. Why is that? Because God is one. Let's make him in our image, male and female. God, God is one. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all the same essence God, but they're different persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father. Uh, the Son is not the, fa- uh, the Spirit. They're differing. Each person is different, but they're one, and they complement one another. And so God creates humans that way. In 2.18, he, after he makes Adam, he says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It means, the, it, the note in your Bible will say fit for him means corresponding to him. I'm going to make a partner for him that corresponds, that that, that goes with him in a complementary way, that is suited to him. Not the same as him totally, but that will complement in a different way. So she's fitted to him emotionally, spiritually, without giving any detail. Physically, they're complementary. In the sexual union between a man and a woman, there is a creation uh, in their body that they complement and fit, if I could say it that way, fit together. So he makes them, by virtue of their differences, they complement and they become one and they reflect God who is one but different in persons. Um, Then uh, he expresses in 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So, So this is marriage. She will become his wife. This is the biblical picture of marriage. It's the only picture of marriage in the entire Bible. It's the only picture that's, uh, where sex is uh, endorsed by God it, it, in the Bible is between a married man and woman. Who, he says he will hold fast to his wife. They'll be in covenant together, and they will become one flesh. That means their body will be joined as one in sexual union, and they will become one in all of life. Their heart, their emotions, their, they'll share their, fin- their bank account, their finances, everything. They become one person. So that Jesus, in Matthew 19, goes back to this. Some people say, I'll address this later, Jesus never talks about homosexuality. Well, he never uses that word like the Bible does elsewhere. But he clearly addresses the topic. Jesus looks back to Genesis 2, and he says that this is the plan of God for marriage. And he says, the two will become one and they will no longer be two, but they will be one. That's what Jesus says, of one flesh. So he in, endorses this as well. So that is where the sexual relationship takes place. It's complementary, and thus it reflects God. Secondly, in 128, and I'm going to move fast through some of this, so please, if you can, listen fast. 128, it, God gives them this command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God gives the first man and first woman a mandate. He gives them a mission. He gives them a calling. They're to marry and be together, and through their sexual union, they are to multiply and produce children. Some people are unable to produce children uh, for you know, medical reasons or whatever, but it's still a relationship that is, uh, that is procreative in nature, we could say. So they're one, they reflect God in a way because of they complement and they come as one, and they fulfill the calling of God to multiply and 
uh, have children. So they reflect the triune nature of God, and they produce new life and fulfill God's mission. That, that can only happen, what I'm describing can only happen with two separate genders and not two same genders by God's design. In the New Testament, we get another picture. Paul writes in Ephesians that the married couple is like Christ and the church. And so they're different, but they're joined. We see that in Revelation, that Jesus is the groom and the church, which that feels a little weird if you're a male, perhaps, but the church corporately is the bride, so we're all the bride together. So the Jesus, we're, we're one with Jesus, we're in union with Christ, we are the body of Christ, and yet we're separate and different from him. He's the groom, the church is the bride. So what's the picture there? Well, the picture there is that they're not the same. Jesus is male and the corporate bride is female. Jesus and the church are one, they're in union, we're the body of Christ, and yet they're distinct and different just as male and female complement one another. So that picture doesn't work either in a context where both sexual partners are male or both sexual partners are female. And we see this throughout. Some people say, well, the Bible doesn't talk much about homosexuality. That is true. We're going to look at almost, we're going to look at the majority of the scriptures here in a minute where it does. Uh, however, the Bible talks about marriage and sexual union between one man and one woman as his design all over the place. We see it in Genesis. We see it in the book of Proverbs. We studied the whole book of Song of Solomon, which had no category for sexual relationship and presented no model outside of male and female. Uh, the Gospels, Jesus talks about, I'll get to that in a minute. The Gospels reflect marriage between a man and a woman. Paul in multiple epistles does. And then in the Revelation as well, the picture of Jesus as the groom at the wedding feast and the church as the bride. So the, so the scripture, uh, so verses that forbid homosexual practice are not as common because the given picture throughout the scripture is that God's design for sex and for marriage is the template which is to be followed. And so it doesn't, it doesn't address the other nearly as much for that way. One of, the, one of the things is the beauty of sexuality between a man and a woman is it reflects God the same and yet different in a complementary fashion, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and it reflects Christ and his church. And both of those images are lost if there's not complementary uh, gender involvement, that is a man and a woman, versus same-sex sexual union. The, the next passage I want to look at, which actually does address this, uh, is Leviticus. Um, this is a well-known passage. I'm not going to be able to answer... Uh, all the questions about it, but I at least want to look at two passages in Leviticus. Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, 22, uh, the scripture says, You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination, uh, and you shall not lie with any animal. So it's in a passage where uh, God is giving sexual standards to his people so that they remain clean before him. And what he's doing is he's taking many of the... Sec they're about to go into the promised land. He's taking many of the sexual practices of the pagan nations, and he's saying, don't do these things. Don't do what the pagan nations do. Act differently. And so he's laying out for them. And what he's basically doing, if you read Genesis 18 on your own, what you'll see is he's looking at er multiple categories of sexual practice that is different than Genesis 1 and 2. He's, just, he's not listing them all, 
but he's listing a lot of different sexual practices that aren't Genesis 1 and 2 that the scripture forbids. So, for instance, he walks through this chapter and he says you can't have sex with a close relative. So don't have sex with your mom, don't have sex with your dad, don't have sex with your stepmother. I mean, it's spelled all out. Don't have sex with your sister, don't have sex with your daughter-in-law. Then he goes to adultery, don't have sex with your neighbor's wife. Uh, then he cl- the, the last one is don't have sex with an animal, because that would not reflect Genesis uh, 1 and 2. And in the verse we just read, he's saying don't have sex with someone that is your same gender. You shall not lie uh, with a man as with a woman. So he forbids it there. Two chapters later, the scripture mentions it again. In chapter 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, and lying is a, is a not a euphemism, but it's a term for sexual intercourse in the Bible. Knowing, knowing your spouse is sex and lying with them is sex. He's not just talking about, you know, we just kind of relaxed on a hammock or something. He's talking about like we, we had intercourse. That's lying. So... Uh, It says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They surely shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So in that passage, um, he not only says that it's forbidden, but it's actually a capital offense uh, in Israel. Now, uh, lest we make that a very unique sin, there was other sexual sins that were a capital offense. You were to be killed if you committed adultery as well. Um, and that's not only the sin that's the only sin that's called an abomination. It is called an abomination, something very offensive to God. Yet there are other abominations throughout the scriptures. Matter of fact, uh, the book of Proverbs, um, if you, if you look in the, uh, in various Proverbs, it says there are, I didn't write down the reference. I'm just looking at this and realize I didn't, uh, I didn't actually, uh, write down the, the, uh, reference to it, but there it even says that, that, um, that slander or sowing, sowing discord among the brothers is an abomination. So it's not the only sin that's an abomination. It's not the only sin that is a capital offense by any means. But that does so. We don't want to make too much of homosexual sin. But we also don't want to make too little of it. Because God clearly says that, uh, that this, is, this is serious and that people that commit the sin are uh, to be stoned and executed in his day. A num- again, a number of sexual sins uh, brought that and other sins. Striking your parent. Teenager punches his dad. Okay, you get killed for that in the Old Testament. So there's a number of areas, and, and that sounds so foreign to us because we've drawn, we spent so little time, many of us have spent so little time in the Scripture informing our sexual ethics and so much time in the culture having our sexual ethics be informed. So we'll let the Scripture inform our sexual ethics. Well, is Leviticus, are these passages in Leviticus relevant for today? Well, they are. But even if we had an interpretation that they weren't, um, the sin of homosexual practice is forbidden in the New Testament. So that point would be moot. It wouldn't matter. We're going to look at some New Testament passages. But some people do say that because the chapter I read that says, don't sleep with an animal, don't sleep with your mom, don't sleep with your sister, don't sleep with someone of your same gender, also says in that same chapter, I, I, I got to address this, okay, because it's raised all, oftentimes. It also says that a man is not to have sex with his wife when she is, quote, in her menstrual uncleanness. And so some people say, well, nobody talks about that. Uh, in other words, nobody says when a woman's on her period that she's not supposed to have sex, but everybody wants to bash homosexuals. 
Um, well, there's more than one kind of uncleanness in the Old Testament. There is ceremonial uncleanness and there is moral uncleanness. Ceremonial uncleanness means there were certain conditions that you couldn't come into the tabernacle and temple and worship. And I can't give all the reasons for that now, but you couldn't come in and worship. One was when a woman was on her period. If you touched a dead body, you couldn't come in until you had been cleansed uh, or touched a dead animal even. You couldn't come in until you've been cleansed because you were not morally unclean. A period is not sinful. Touching a dead cow is not sinful, but it rendered, it, it rendered, um, it rendered one touching the loss of life or death, and so they weren't to come into the presence of the Lord. A lot of reasons for that. So in the New Testament, there, Jesus overturns all of the ceremonial uncleanness, and that's why, that's why it's still wrong for two men to have sex together and yet it's not wrong to eat bacon, which is part of the ceremonial law, which Jesus declared all things pure, all things to be eaten. And there's nothing in the New Testament about someone avoiding coming into worship because they've touched a dead animal uh, or anything like that. That's not in the New Testament. Jesus fulfills all the ceremonial law. Think about corporate worship, all the ceremonial law. So he's the sacrifice, he's the temple, he's the high priest. But who you sleep with is a moral issue that continues in the, the New Testament. So just because it says it in Leviticus 18, it's still true. You can't sleep with your neighbor's wife. God still forbids that. So who you have sex with is carried over into the New Testament as moral law. This, make, this is unclean in terms of sin. Doesn't matter where you are. The other is renders one unclean in terms of worship. So that's, that's, why, that is, uh, that's why that is in there. Uh, <clears throat> for the sake of time... I'm going to give you a scripture, and I'm going to skip this one. But in the Gospels is Mark, we're going to move to the New Testament, is Mark 7, uh, 21. And I just want to say really quickly on that, some people say that homosexuality is never addressed by Jesus. Um, and yet in, that, in, Romans, in Mark 7, Jesus uh, forbids sexual immorality. The word is porneia. And uh, anyone listening to Jesus, any, any Jew that heard him use that word, which we translate sexual immorality, would clearly have understood that sexual immorality is sex with anyone in any context outside of marriage. The, the Jews had no other category. So that means, uh, you, you know, that means sex, uh, fornication to unmarried people having sex, sexual immorality. Everybody would have gotten that. Adultery. Everybody would have gotten that. Sex with an animal, everybody would have known that was wrong. Sex with your sister, everybody would have known that's forbidden. That's sexual immorality. Sexual immorality was a catch-all phrase that would include everything the Old Testament forbade, including homosexual practice. So when Jesus uses that term, he's very clearly using a term that all the original listeners would have gotten. Homosexual practice was completely uncontroversial. Uh, in, in Judaism and in, uh, and in Christianity, it was, a, it was a given among the hearers. And actually in the church, uh, throughout the church history, it's never been endorsed as a practice for Christians until maybe the 1950s or something when it first started coming up. So for about 1,900 years after Jesus, um, it's not been a controversy, but it certainly is in our, in our, in our generation. Romans 1, I want to talk about this passage a little bit. Um, uh, so that we have a conviction about what God's word says. This, that, that, this part of the sermon is a conviction, conviction about what does God's word say. Um, in chapter 1, uh, this passage, we taught this passage, so you may remember, it may not. But verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So what, what Paul is saying is God judges sin. And what he's going to say is everybody's a sinner. 
And so he, when he's done by chapter 3, ev- nobody gets off the hook. Nobody. And so he says what happens is natural people, we don't worship God. We, we worship idols. We exchange worship of God for idols, and then God gives us over to our desires. And so he starts listing what those are. So in verse 24, for instance, uh, he says, God gave them up, those who didn't worship the Lord, and he gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So that's just some type of sexual sin. Could be heterosexual sin, could be homosexual sin. The big point I made when I taught this is Romans 1 is not the, the gay passage. It, it catches all of us. So we just mentioned sexual immorality, uh, which is all of us, at, at least at a heart level. We've all committed sexual immorality, at least in the desire level. Um, and then he gives one specific area of, of this uh, topic of uh, impurity, sexual impurity, and that is in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So in this passage of Scripture, uh, God is, is talking about how people have turned from him and have gone their own way, and he's allowed them to go in their sin, and some people in their sin uh, have exchanged natural affections and have had affections that are against nature. What does that mean? He says, well, women with women and men with men. Genesis 1 and 2, so God created man and woman, and he created a, a natural body and a natural affection uh, for the opposite sex prior to the fall. Now, after Genesis 3, all of our sexual desires are perverted and skewed. Anytime you have ever had a lustful desire for someone that you're not married to, anytime you thought about, fantasized, read about, saw, desired any sexual activity, any you know, romantic activity of the person you're not married to, you sinned in your heart. Jesus calls that adultery of the heart. So we all, after Genesis 3, all our desires are skewed. But he, he identifies this particular one uh, in this passage. And then in the next passage, he goes over, and we read this last time, he goes over a whole list of things that God pours out his wrath on. Uh, covetousness, malice, envy, strife, murder, deceit. So in there, we're, we all appear somewhere. However, he takes these, I'm not talking about all that. I talked about all that in July. I'm just talking about homosexuality tonight. So that's these two verses where he says they are consumed with passion for one another. They are having a mutual sexual relationship, man and man, woman and woman, and he is saying this is against nature. It's against God because they have turned from God. We all know God in our heart, but they've turned from God. We all turn from God, and they have created their own idols. They've created their own desires. They're chasing their own desires. And for some people, the lust in their heart is, um, is homosexual lusts and sin. So this is, this is addressed very clearly, certainly here. It's, it's kind of the plain teaching of this passage. Um, he, it's clearly forcefully uh, forbidden in, in the passage. Uh, it actually says more than that. It's a subject, uh, it's subject to judgment. All those sins unrepented of are subject, of judgment, uh, subject to judgment. The reality is that the plain teaching of Scripture makes it clear that God forbids homosexual practice. Let me read you two more passages. I'm not even going to comment on these, but I just want to show you because I want to make a point both for conviction and compassion on this one. Uh, they go together. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. 
this has eternal consequences. And this is why I'm saying it's not compassionate to tell people that you can be saved, be converted, be declared righteous before God, and live in unrepented uh, homosexual practice. It, it, that's not loving, because that's not what the Scripture says. You can put that back up. I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is serious. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's broad. We already said that, porneia. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You used to be this way, says the Corinthians. You, you, you guys, some of you guys used to be given to alcohol and drunkenness. Some of you were stealing from people. Some of you were sleeping with other people's wives. Some of you men were having sex with men. You used to do, we used to do all these things, he says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So I read that because in that list, uh, there's eternal consequences. So that's why conviction is so important, and there's no real compassion without conviction. First Timothy one. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, for sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality enslavers. That's an interesting one. Because some people say that the Bible endorses slavery and that later we saw how ancient and backward and bigoted the Bible was. And now we know slavery is bad. And the same thing is true with homosexuality. The Bible forbids homosexuality, but now in a more open-minded context, we know that God is okay with it. God is not okay with slavery. That whole argument is fallacious. Right now, he's saying that those who enslave people, that is have slaves, take people as your slaves, that's sinful and forbidden in Scripture. It's sinful, enslaving, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So that's, again, well, well, there's a whole list there, Craig. Why are you uh, speaking on this one? The church is 10 years old. I've never taught a message on homosexuality. If this is your first time, you just happen to come on the night I'm addressing it. I'm just addressing that out of the whole list because that's the topic for the evening. But there's other sins as well. So to embrace homosexual sex as a Christian, one must appeal to something beside the Scripture. And I want to say this because there are books, the two well-known books came out last year. There are books coming out by people who say, I don't know their hearts, but say they're fully evangelical and fully committed to the authority of Scripture and have pedigrees and backgrounds of sorts. Um, And they're saying that homosexual unions are okay. I just want to say this, that you have to go somewhere besides Scripture to say that. And I'm going to read you a quote from a liberal scholar who I deeply respect this quote, and I'm going to read it to you. I disagree with him totally, but I respect his quote. And when you listen to the quote by Luke, Luke Timothy Johnson, he is a scholar, I believe, at Emory in Atlanta, Um, and he is for, he's a Christian and he endorses homosexual unions and homosexual marriage. But listen to this scholar. Don't agree with him. I totally respect his argument. Look what he says. He says the task demands intellectual honesty. I, he supports homosexual unions for Christians. I have little patience with efforts to make scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic and cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. 
But what are we to do with what the text says? We must state our grounds for standing in tension with the clear commands of Scripture. I need to tell you why I endorse homosexuality when the Scripture doesn't, he says, and include in those grounds some basis in Scripture itself. I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. Thank you for your honesty. We reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others who uh, have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God has created us. Totally disagree and totally appreciate his honesty. And for younger folks in particular, we're about to go to compassion. For younger folks in particular, this is so important. Because the question is, what is my authority for sexual ethics? And what he's saying is, my authority is not the scripture. I teach at a seminary, but mine's not the scripture. It's experience. Because here's what I've observed. This is what I read. Tony Campolo, evangelical, came out supporting uh, homosexual union. This was his reason. Same thing as this, my experience. I've seen many loving gay couples that have better marriages than heterosexual couples. That may be true. I've seen plenty of gay people that stay together and are faithful over long term. That may be true. There may be many gay people that exhibit wonderful qualities. There are. What am am I saying? Maybe. There are. That really can love someone else in terms of an emotional kind of a love and really could stay true in terms of physically not having sex with anyone else and stay committed. That's all possible. More than possible, likely and true. But that, our experience cannot be the determining factor of what's right and wrong, nor can how I feel inside. How I feel about something cannot be a determining factor. And that's why I think some of the most heroic Christians imaginable are people who struggle with same-sex attraction and say, it doesn't matter how I feel. It matters what the Scripture says. And I'm going to walk in holiness, Lord. And that may mean I'm single my whole life. But I'm going to walk in what I believe the Bible says. I'm committed to purity before the Lord. And I'm going to follow him. I'm going to take up my cross and follow him. We need to applaud and celebrate those kinds of people. Because that is serious, serious commitment. That is saying, I'm not go- I don't feel like this. But I'm going to go with Scripture. So there's a, that, that's the issue. If, the, if someone is going to endorse homosexual union as a Christian, there's going to have to be a reason other than the Scripture because it's the plain teaching of Scripture. But it's not only good enough to know that. We have to walk with compassion. Let me give you three points about compassion. Here's the first. Compassion begins with a sense of our own sinfulness. Your temptations may not be homosexual in nature, But as we've gone through this series, one thing is clear. We are all sexual sinners. And as we saw last week, the Pharisees wanted to support themselves because they didn't do certain things. They wanted to separate themselves. They wanted to say, I don't commit adultery because I didn't physically sleep with someone I'm not married to. And you know what Jesus said to them? He cut out from under them their self-righteousness. And he said this, if you've ever looked with lustful intent on someone else, you've committed adultery in your heart. What he wanted to say to them is, do not separate yourself from someone else's sins by saying, I'm better than them because I don't do that, because we all have committed sexual sin in our hearts. So why don't you, rather than prop yourself up in self-righteousness, see your need for a Savior? And so we must all have a sense of our own sinfulness. 
And when we look at the heart, it has a leveling effect because Jesus says sexual sin is not just what you do. It's what you want to do. It's not just what you do. It's what you desire to do. And so we shouldn't be giving ourselves a pass for what we haven't done. We shouldn't say as a man, I've never had sex with a man, so I'm better than someone else. As a woman, I've never had sex with a woman, so I'm better than someone who has. We should not be looking at someone else's sin and what they've done. We should approach everyone with an awareness of our sin and our need for a Savior. This is why Paul says he determines himself the greatest sinner that he knows. Why? Because he's looking at his own heart, he's aware of his own sin, and he's not looking at other people and saying their sins are worse than mine. And we will never have compassion for any sinner. I don't care what the sin is. We will never have compassion for them if we are not keenly in touch with our own fallenness and our own need for Jesus. We shouldn't be looking on the sins of others with disdain or superiority. We shouldn't be looking on other people and say, their sin grosses me out. When I think of that particular sin, that's like I got a yuck factor to me. Listen, the yuck factor should be about me and my sins. Nothing should have a greater yuck factor than what I have done against a holy God. And until I start living in that, I'm not going to have compassion. I'm going to be self-righteous in subtle ways or in blatant ways. I'm going to be judgmental, and I'm never going to reach out to people that have a need because I'm going to see them as someone to stay separate from. Tonight, I've sought to be clear that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. But did you notice in every passage I read to you, except Genesis 1 and 2, which wasn't about homosexuality explicitly, every passage I read to you, it's mentioned in a list. There's not the homosexual book. There's not the chapter against gay sex. It's always in a list. And the problem is that oftentimes we want to find homosexuality in the list and not be looking for our sin if that's not our temptation. We were in every one of the lists. Did you notice that? That's why I read those two scriptures that had big lists. If we can't find ourselves in the list, we got a serious problem. The list means that I need a savior. And until I come clear with that, until we as a church all live in that, we will never be a safe place for someone to come in and hear the gospel who struggles with sins differently than we. And we will never be a place for someone to share what's really going on in the secrets of their heart because certain things are acceptable to confess and certain other things are unacceptable to confess because there's the yuck factor or I would never do that or that's, you know, whatever. I love this illustration, man. I want to embrace this by uh, Tim Keller. He said the church, I love this. He said the church should not be like the waiting room for a job interview. The church should be like the waiting room for the doctor. And I'm going to change it a little bit, say the waiting room at urgent care. If you've ever been to urgent care, the waiting room for a job interview is everybody dressed nicely, hiding all their faults, covering all their mistakes to look as presentable as possible so that by their good impression, they can gain the job and get a higher status. He said the church should never look like that. Have you ever been to the urgent care room? It is not people dressed up. I've seen people I don't even know just throwing up. Just throwing up. I've seen dudes with their hand wrapped in a bloody towel. Dude severed his finger over there. He doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. I've seen elderly people moan, just moaning out, you know, and I think, can we help? Can we get them some help here? I don't understand urgent care. People are just waiting out there long periods of time. 
But he says, that's what the church should be like. It shouldn't be us coming together and me saying, here's all the, th- here's all the things I'm doing and all the things I'm going to present my best foot forward so I get the job. That's a, we should be looking around and saying, man, that guy's got a bloody hand and somebody's throwing up, and somebody's moaning, and people are sneezing across the room. With, we, we, it should be a place because in the urgent care, everybody's there to get help. And that's the church. The church isn't to come impress everybody. The church is a place to come and get help. And I love that image. Now, hopefully, we're getting some treatment to press the image further. Hopefully, we're getting some treatment so that we get stronger and get healthy and don't live our whole life vomiting in the emergency room, okay? Hopefully, it gets a little better so it's not a complete picture of the Christian life. But it's a picture of the attitude of the Christian life. And until we live with that, we will never have compassion on people who have sin patterns different than I. We addressed that last week. For some married women, they don't understand how a husband could look at pornography. We tried to address that last week. I would never do that. Well, you can't have, we can't have that attitude because your self-righteousness right there may be worse than his pornography. At least that's kind of how Jesus treated it. It wasn't the people who came with sinful needs. It was the people that judged them and refused them. That's who Jesus judged. Jesus resisted Pharisees who would have nothing to do with tax collectors and sinners. But if you're a woman sleeping with men for money, and if you're stealing money from people and you'll come to Jesus and you're humble and you want to believe and repent, he'll hang out with you all day long. And we want the church to be that way, not a place where people just live in their sins, but where people can come in them and be real about them to find the gospel to help and change. So compassion begins with a sense of our own sinfulness. Number two, number two, we must share the good news with homosexuals. We must share the good news with the LGBT community. So what is the gospel for gays? There's no such thing. It's the gospel for everybody. It's the gospel for sinners. This is what Jesus says in Mark 1. Jesus came proclaiming the, good, the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He just comes with one message. It's not the heterosexual gospel and the gay gospel. It's not the gospel for Jews and the gospel for Gentiles. It's not the gospel for men and the gospel for women. It's the gospel for everybody who is all sinners, who all need a Savior. It's good news for everyone who will believe and repent. And so we want to be a a people that have a heart for all. For all kinds of folks. And part of the political rhetoric right now is wedging, wedging the church from a dying world that needs the gospel. I'm not saying we shouldn't take a political stand, but I'm saying we should be very clear and very careful with our words. Sam Albury, in his book, Is God Anti-Gay? He says that we need to work with people from the inside out. He says when somebody comes to the church, they need to get the inside message. Here's the inside message. Jesus is God. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus was resurrected for sinners. We want them to be enthralled with Jesus, whoever anyone is. We want them to be enthralled with the glorious Savior who would give his life for sinners. That's the inside. Then, over time, however the Lord works, we begin to work to the outside. So, You want to know this, Jesus? That means believing and turning from your sin. And after you're converted, all your sins don't go away. Sometimes they do. I mean, I've talked to people who were drug addicted, and they got saved, and it went away instantly. So that can happen, but normally that doesn't happen. Normally, angry people that get converted still struggle with anger. 
Gay people still struggle sometimes with same-sex attraction after their conversions. Not always. Some, some, sometimes the Lord changes uh, their, their sexual desires change. Why do they sometimes why do that? I don't know. I don't know why some people battle alcoholism until they die, and one guy prayed the sinner's prayer and never had a desire for alcohol the rest of their life. I don't know the answer to that. But I just know we've got to come alongside both those people and help them. So he says you work from the inside out. So here is Jesus now. You want to follow him? Let's talk about what would it mean in your life to be a follower of Jesus. We don't go from the outside in. What's your sin? And then let's go in there. And we do that. Well, she's a lesbian. It'd be really hard for her to come to Jesus. I mean, the Spirit of God might not be able to give her a new heart like he did everyone else. Look, if he saved you, he can save anybody. And so we begin to, oh, they're, they're sent. We've got to talk about their sin. We've got to deal, first of all, who are they and can they get saved and what can happen? The people Jesus called as his disciples were unlikely candidates. I love the title of this book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Everybody's unlikely, ultimately. Everybody's unlikely. So we want to talk about Jesus and what he's done. Alberry in that book says, he says, you know, some people have come to me and said, man, it must be really hard for you to follow Jesus. If you struggle with same-sex attraction, it must be really, really hard. And he was like, well, I'm not sure there's any other way. I'm not sure what gospel you believed. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. So my death to self may be different than your death to self, but like death is death. <laughs> so I say, you're putting me in a category. I'm not my sexual orientation. I'm a believer. I'm in union with Christ. I'm not defined by my sexual desire. I'm defined by being in union with Christ, is what he would say. And so now I've got to fight the flesh. We all have to lay stuff down. And he says, if you came into, the, if you came into believing and following Jesus and thinking it's just a tweak of your life and there's no upsetting to who you are and turning your life upside down, I don't even know if you know Jesus, is what he said. Because a Christian life, that's the image Jesus uses, death. Take up your cross and die and follow me. Now, is it complicated? Can there be differing levels of complications? Sure. Sure, repentance, depending on what our sins are, repentance can get a bit complicating. But it's all by grace, and we all have to die, and everybody has to give stuff up, and it's a challenge for anybody to follow Jesus if we're really following him, and we all need grace. So how do we bring the gospel to gaze? Well, I think the way we bring the gospel to anybody else, love, hospitality, friendship, patience, care, not treating them as a project, but a person. See, the, the culture war rhetoric often just sounds so shrill and so uncompassionate that there's just no way to follow that up with an invitation to dinner. And it's just a lot easier to get on social media or in private conversation and start railing against a group of people than it is to have a gay couple over for dinner and love them and serve them and share the gospel with them. One is easy. The other is very, very different. Patience, care, love. So, someone asked me, how would our church react if a married les lesbian couple came to visit our church? Because this person was thinking about inviting this lesbian couple, married lesbian couple to uh, visit our church. And so I paused and I said, well, I don't know how we'd respond, but I'll tell you how I hope we'd respond. I mean, it's what I'm talking about right now. Um, i tell you how I hope we would respond and, and, and by the way, it's not if, it's when. It's not if. It's not if. 
because uh, we're faithful. We'll invite all kinds of people to hear the gospel, and we won't check their sexual orientation before we issue an, an invitation. And it's already had, we already had a gay couple visit our church, so it wouldn't be the, they won't be the first if they come. But I hope they would be welcomed by sinners like any other sinner who came in because we're all on the list. Why, why would there be different on the list? Like, there's the big list. Well, there's your sin, and, you know, so you're not going to be able to, or it's going to be really hard for you, or we don't know, I don't even know, and how are we? If we're really in touch with our own need for a Savior, then we'd be very compassionate as we talk to others about their need. And why would we start with somebody's sex life anyway? If you invite, if, <laughs> if you invite your coworker to church, and this has happened too, if you invite your coworker to church and he shows up with his girlfriend that he's living with, are we starting there? Like, hi, how are you doing? Oh, Joe, Susie, okay, you guys are dating? Well, I know you're new here and we just met, but now are y'all having sex? Because I need to know how, how awkward should I be around you and how quickly do we need to start talking about your sins? You know, meet a new guy at church. Hey, how you doing? Uh, Bill, nice to meet you. First time here? Yeah, well, hey, have you looked at pornography in the last 24 hours? Why would we ever start with that? And that's why I love his illustration. Let's start with Jesus. I don't care if you're a liar, a gossip, uh, sexually immoral, proud, arrogant, self-righteous church person with perfect attendance your whole life. I don't care who you are. We're gonna, we, I hope we would treat you. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Let's talk about the glorious Savior. And if the person is convicted by the Holy Spirit and wants to follow him, then obviously... There's conversations with everybody about what does following Jesus look like. If, but, 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 the, but the homosexual Christian and the heterosexual, I'm sorry, the homosexual lost person and the heterosexual lost person that walk in here are equally spiritually dead. One of them, you can't be more dead. You're spiritually dead and then you come to life. Those are the two categories. There, there's two categories. It's not hetero and homo. The two categories are in Adam or in Christ, as Bob said last week. That's it. Dead or alive. There's no other categories. Paul is killing Christians. The most unlikely person. He is killing Christians. God saves him. And he writes the Bible that we're reading. He was dead. He came to life. You were dead. You came to life. Dead people come in. Let's give them the life of Jesus and, and uh, trust the Lord. That's how I hope we would respond. That's how we'd respond to anybody who comes in in sexual sin. We've had couples that are not married, that are living together, that have come into the church, heard the gospel, uh, started following the Lord, and got married. Now, understand, obviously, it would be different. I understand there's a context there that would be different uh, because of what I've taught about what the Scripture teaches about uh, homosexual uh, sex and relationships. So understand repentance would look different for those two couples. But nonetheless, there's still a sense of being dead and then coming to life. So what does compassion look like? It's being in touch with our own sin. Secondly, it is reaching out to the lost uh, with the gospel. That's how I hope we would respond. What if someone is converted and they still struggle with same-sex attraction? Number three, we come alongside believers who wrestle with same-sex attraction. So here's what compassion looks like. Conviction is this is what the Scripture teaches. Here's what compassion looks like. Compassion looks like being in touch with our own sin, sinners reaching sinners, bringing the gospel to, to gay people who need the gospel. And then thirdly, if someone struggles with same-sex attraction, we come alongside them to help them like any sexual temptation. 
And my goal in this point is to make this a category for discussion because it's not a category, perhaps, for some of us. But if you thought about it a little bit, you would say, yeah, I see that. Any sin that you bring into your conversion, you can still struggle with it after conversion. Gamble before conversion, still could be tempted to gamble afterwards. Look at porn before conversion, heterosexual porn before conversion, you could still be tempted afterwards. Drinking problem before, drinking problem after. Anger before, greed before. You're not taken to heaven instantly. You get a new heart, and then you work out your salvation by fear and trembling over the course of your life, by mortifying, putting to death sin, and bringing to life righteousness. So everybody goes through that process. Regardless of what you bring to the party, you're still, the Lord's cleaning us up for our whole lives. He declares us clean and then makes us like it. So this is a category. Some people have grown up in the church, and from their earliest memories, they have been drawn to intimate friendships and intimate sexual desire for people of the same sex. Some would say that when they first hit puberty and first started having sexual desires for the same sex. Uh, I can't, I don't know, I can't explain that. I can only explain that post-Genesis 3, everybody has perverted desires. And yours may be different than someone else's. So an unwanted desire, an unwanted uh, attraction to someone of the same sex. Uh, And what's really sad, that often they feel like they could confess any sin or temptation in their life but that one. Because people and their friends would be weirded out, freaked out, wouldn't know how to respond I just want to say, and I know this is hard for all of us because we could, there'd be different topics where it might be hard for us to talk to someone about, but people's temptations just can't be out of bounds for discussion in the body of Christ. They just can't be. We just can't, I just can't freak out someone else is tempted in a way differently than me. And we will fail as a church if we cannot confess our sins and our temptations and get some help, some accountability, some prayer, some counsel, some strength as we're trying to repent. We can't have every sin you can get help for but this one. We cannot be that way. That is not the church of Jesus Christ. That is not how he responded. This is especially important for younger people because I think there are some people who first have some kind of temptation when they puberty this way And I want to say to the young people, I want this, we want this, the pastors want this, I trust your parents want this, I believe they do, want this to be a church where you could open that up and get some help. You may not be able to with everybody, but with your parents, first of all. I'm talking to parents here. Our kids need to be able to share if they have this temptation. So it can be brought into the light and talked about. Because if it's not, what happens is we struggle in the dark, and sin grows in the dark, and our curiosities grow in the dark, and our lusts grow in the dark, and we are good church kid, and then our junior year of college announce everybody, I'm gay. And they say, where did that come from? Oh, about 10 years of not being able to talk about it, talk about it with the scripture, everything, and then finally, just go in that direction. I'm not saying that everyone from a church background who practices homosexuality as an adult, that's their story. But I'm saying that's some people's story. So especially for younger people, I have a major goal in this message is that we can get some things on the table that someone could talk about and it could be safe. And if it's, we're going to work at making it as safe as possible. That's why I talked about women and pornography last week, because we know that women struggle with pornography, but it's not an acceptable uh, thing. Say, I got mad at my kid. Totally acceptable. Share that in the ladies group. Say, I'm looking at lesbian porn or heterosexual porn. That, whoa, that's different. But now we have a freedom group with women attending it uh, who are struggling with that and getting help. Praise God for that. We got a men's group. They all met on Saturday. Um, I don't know any of the ladies in the group. It's a confidential group. But I know they have a group, and I know the men do as well. 
And uh, praise God, that topic is on the table. Let's talk about it and get some help. And let's rescue a generation of teens who are running into gender confusion, pornography by the droves, and uh, confusion about sexual orientation as well. Let's talk about it, and let's get some help. All this series has been that way. Maybe if you're struggling in your marriage sexuality, that's what we talked about, Song of Solomon. Let's say we're struggling. None of us match that ideal, so I need help. You need help. If you're sexist, if you're single, you're struggling. We want all these topics to be able to be talked about. Let me just say one other thing, and I'll be done with this. Here's another way that we can make someone who struggles with same-sex attraction is a committed Christian and is repenting, not giving in, but repenting. Here's another thing we can do to serve people in that way. One, make it a topic that's acceptable to talk about because it's acceptable to confess to God, but better be acceptable to confess to all the sinners. Here's the, here's the second one is uh, homosexuality is not a topic for jokes. It's not a topic for jokes. Um, there are Christian, guy, Christian guys hang out. And if somebody started telling a perverted sexual joke with vulgar language, body parts, demeaning women, swearing, started telling a joke like that, there's a guy who would probably say, hey, hey, what, you know, come on, man, that's a little bit out of bounds, right? If we're all Christians here at the community group. Somebody starts telling this super dirty joke. Some guy, hey, come on, man. You know, they probably would just do it graciously, but hey, hold on. That's, that's not the best, whatever. If somebody started, if six white guys, okay, in a circle at community group, start telling a, a joke mocking African-Americans, I pray, I hope that one of us white guys in the circle says, hey, man, oh, that's out of bounds. That's not right. But you know what? That same circle of six guys could tell a gay joke and they'd all laugh. They'd all laugh. Because it's an acceptable topic for mocking. And if you struggle with same-sex attraction and the six guys in the community group don't tell dirty jokes, don't tell racial jokes, but can laugh and mock and do a, do a, uh, make, make fun of effeminate or, you know, gay stereotypes or make fun of somebody because they say she's a butch-looking girl or an effeminate guy or whatever, and they make some kind of a joke about it, and everybody laughs. You think you're ever going to confess that's a struggle? You just found out my struggle is one that we can't talk about here. It's something we mock. So we have to be a people that are committed to looking at our own sin and watching our language. I mean, a way to say something that's acceptable. Christians would say this. Young Christians would say this. Instead of saying that's so stupid, that's so gay. They don't mean two people of the same gender having sex. I mean, that's stupid. That's an adjective that says that's, or, you know, maybe stupid is not the right word, but they're, they're being demeaning about something. We're not going to have people coming in to hear the gospel. If we're saying that, it wouldn't be acceptable for me to make jokes. It would not be acceptable for me to make jokes about sleeping with other women. That adultery is not funny. It wouldn't be. That's never funny. But homosexuality is, and I've made those jokes. I'm pointing my finger. I, I'm not doing that now. But when I was younger, I'm, by God's grace, I'm not doing that now. I mean, I could slip and say something any time. But, uh, but I did that. I thought that was funny. Um, but it's not funny because we're talking about people that are trying to walk in holiness. As I said earlier, we should be honoring people that are walking in righteousness and struggling there. We should never be mocking, never be laughing. So what does, communi- what does compassion look like? One, beware of your own sexual sin, including self-righteousness. And can I just say this, including homophobia, which is not in the Bible, but I looked it up, and the definition was dislike or prejudice against LGBT people. You think God would endorse it? Do we really think that Jesus would endorse disliking people because of their sin? 
Do we really think that he would say, just judge a whole group of people because of their sin? Absolutely not. He welcomed people who would come to him and want to believe and repent. So, you may not be sleeping around, but your, your dislike of a group of people could be just as offensive to the Lord. Mine too. Number two, seek to bring the same good news to homosexuals that we would to heterosexuals. It's good news for sinners. We don't start with your sex life. We start with you're a person that needs Jesus, and he's glorious. A heart to love and serve and to reach out. Number three, we want to come alongside those who may struggle with same-sex attraction. I don't know how many people that is in our church, uh, but whether it's a small group or not, it's people that matter to the Lord and matter to us. Um, and if that's you, we'd like to help you. I mean, as our pastor's meeting this week, we just said, I, I, we don't really know how many people are like that, but we would like to start a freedom group. If, if there were people who say, I'm struggling, could you help me? We start a group for that. So if you are wrestling with same-sex attraction as a Christian, you email any of the pastors, talk to us, whatever, and we'll, we'll do whatever we can to help you. Conviction and compassion. Conviction and compassion. I, I, hope, I hope I was bold and clear in saying homosexual practice is a sin and unrepented of leads to hell. I hope that was clear. And I hope I was clear that we must be compassionate bringing the gospel to all people regardless of where they are. And we start with our own sin. And we, we need to break out of our own prejudice and arrogance and self-righteousness and be reaching out to people who are caught who are empty and who are looking for Jesus and be compassionate with them. And then we need to realize that there's some in our own midst who are converted, but their previous temptations, unwanted temptations, stay with them. And we need to make this a very safe place for them to get help. We need this to be a very safe place for any unbeliever to come and hear the gospel. They're going to hear the law. That was the first part of the message. They're going to hear the law, what God teaches, and they're going to hear Jesus obeyed the law and he died for lawbreakers so you can have new life. That's grace. And we want a safe environment for people to come and hear that and not feel that on the outside, I, I'm not, I can never even invite them. Or there would be a long shot. No, any sinner should be welcome here. And I realize I'm, I'm rolling out. Hey, wow, it just got interesting at Grace Church, okay? I realize that. But I just think it's the Bible. And so let it get interesting. Let there be revival in our church and in our city. And may we look more and more like Jesus. Because I, I look at who Jesus reached out to. And there's times I'm fearful that I'd have been in the Pharisee category and not the person who uh, is sinful and aware of their sinfulness and humbling themselves before Jesus. And for many of us, that's our risk, is that we're in the Pharisee category, and we need to ask the Lord to break our heart for sinners, just holding a strong stand for truth and righteousness. The Bible is our authority for sexual ethics, but we all break the Bible's ethics, so there needs to be help for repentance and change. And let's have great hope. Here's the last thing. Paul said to the Corinthians, such were some of you. Let's believe that those enslaved with pornography can be set free. Such were some of you, pornography viewers. Uh, Compulsive, enslaving masturbation. Such was some of you. Uh, Adulterers, fornicators. Such were some of you. And homosexual practice, homosexuals sleeping, having sex with the same gender person, may, uh, gays and lesbians, such were some of you. Compelled to lust and to look and to depersonalize and objectify people of the opposite sex or the same sex, such were some of you. That's why Jesus died. And so let's trust him that he is redeeming our sex lives. He's redeeming our sexuality. And he is no respecter of persons. Whatever your temptations, 
Jesus is a Savior. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.